You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is Bishop Todd. He's the, our bishop for the Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others. You've probably seen his picture around. Um, I'm glad. We're so, we're so thankful that you're here and we get you in person to just chat. What we're going to do to spend our time together is uh, I have some questions I want to ask the bishop, and basically we're just going to have a real low-key informal discussion. So as, as you have questions, feel free to raise your hand and say, can I ask a follow-up or anything like that? This is going to be really back and forth. Let's begin with a word of prayer. The Lord be with you. Almighty God, thank you that you have given us um, apostolic leadership, godly leadership. And our Bishop Todd, thank you that you have given us the opportunity to be in South Austin um, as an outpost of your kingdom. Lord, we pray, would you use this time to encourage and inspire us for the work that you're doing already in our neighborhood and in our lives. And also, Lord, we pray that you would encourage and bolster and strengthen our bishop as he continues to lead us. We pray that this would all be glorifying and pleasing to you, our God in heaven. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 All right. So, uh, so I have I have three questions for the bishop um, that I'm going to frame our time with a little bit. But we feel free again to interrupt. The first thing is this: a lot of us um, haven't come from Anglican context. Some of us aren't familiar with what it means to be Anglican. Um, but there's some real treasure and some benefit to it. And so I just wanted to talk to our bishop, Bishop Todd, about what is a bishop. So Todd, what is a bishop, and how does that help us? in South Austin on mission in our neighborhood. Yeah. I mean, in, in general, a bishop is uh, just an overseer. Um, that normally means overseeing churches. It can mean overseeing clergy. Um, can you hear me okay in the back? Am I projecting loud enough? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, like, so in, in biblical times, it would have had one sort of flavor as the church has evolved over you know, 20 centuries, it, it's taken on different flavors. Um, and every Christian group has something like this. I mean, even congregational churches that don't believe in bishops or don't believe in, they don't want to be Presbyterians. And, you know, so they, they just want to be congregational like Southern Baptists or whatever. Even, even, even those kind of people have some sort of structure that helps them hang together and have some sort of unity of mission and unity of spirit. So a lot of times a kind of a slang way to talk about a bishop is an instrument of unity. Um, Bishops are often talked about as guardians of the faith. Um, So bishops are the ones who are charged to um, hold orthodoxy in place. Um, But in the way that Sean's asking it, um, the way I'm a bishop would include all those things. Um, but would have attached to it that might be a little remarkable in other settings would be helping to grow the church. And so our diocese is called the Diocese for the Church, Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others. And right at the core of who we are and um, the core of who the Anglican Church in North America has asked us to be is a group of churches and leaders who not only start new churches, but hopefully start whole new dioceses. So the goal would, for instance, someday be to have a a new diocese and a bishop here um, in the Dallas, you know, Austin area. Um, 
So yeah, so I mean, with reference to people like Sean, I'm basically his biggest fan. And um, when he needs, you know, just a coach, mentor, someone to talk to, um, you know, I'm, I'm available for that kind of stuff. So that's really, I mean, the way I conduct my episcopacy, that is to say the way I am a bishop, tends to be, I don't really like this word because it sounds so ostentatious, but um, it tends to be apostolic, which I would prefer the word just, um, you know, missional. We're, we're just trying to work with God as he extends uh, his kingdom. And we mostly do that in planting churches, not entirely, uh, but mostly. Can you, uh, this may be backing up a little bit more, but can you just tell folks a little bit about yourself and about your wife and your family, where you're from, how you grew up? How did you become a bishop? Just give us yeah. that flyby, because that's a really good one. So I'm from Southern California, grew up um, in Orange County. If you know Disneyland or Newport Beach or those kinds of places, that's where I'm from, Santa Ana, California. Grew up in a kind of a culturally religious home um, in a very... 1960s styled, very, very uber liberal United Methodist Church. Of course, I didn't know anything about that at the time. I was just a kid. Um, I think my mom had a genuine faith looking back. Um, But, you know, we didn't, like, I would have never called myself a Christian. In our house, we didn't refer to ourselves as Christians. We might have referred to ourselves as Methodists, maybe. Um, But when I was a young man at 19, uh, the Jesus movement was happening in Southern California, and um, I was converted in the Jesus movement. Um, at that time, it was not at all uncommon to sort of immediately be in the ministry. Um, so I was immediately, like literally within weeks, I had, um, was doing a, what we used to call home Bible study at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, and this was during the time when contemporary Christian music was literally being invented. Like, there was not that term before the late 60s, early to mid-70s. And so this Bible study I was teaching had some of the guys in these early famous bands who would, you know, go out across the country and do tours and come back. Whenever they'd come back to the Bible study, they say things like, man, all the kids in Austin just really wish they had churches like Calvary Chapel or all the kids in Wisconsin or whatever. So I always say that I just kind of heard that one too many times and something exploded in my heart that said, well, then why didn't somebody just go make some churches? Like, how hard can it be, right? I mean, seriously, that's how naive I was. Like, well, if all the kids, you know, are not coming to faith because they can't find a church in which they can hear the gospel in their heart language, well, then why doesn't somebody go make some? (laughs) So that was, that was, I'm not exaggerating. That was literally my calling to church planning. Um, I was playing baseball in college. I was studying business. I didn't make it as a major league baseball player. Um, I went to one of those job fairs, you know, they do in university and was offered a job in management, in banking. I actually took the job and then had a crisis of, like, I just knew I'd done something wrong. So I never actually started the job. I accepted their offer and then felt like I was doing something wrong. So I didn't do it. I went to Calvary Chapel Bible School. That's where I then really prepared the beginning steps of preparing myself for ministry and for church planning. So essentially, I've been involved in church planning one way or another since I was 23. Um, I'll be 60 in April, so coming up on 37 years of being involved in church planning one way or the other. Uh, As that time went on, I was 
president of Vineyard Churches. If you've ever heard of the Vineyard, I was president of Alpha USA. And when I retired as the president of Alpha USA, I was in my early 50s. I had finished my doctorate. I was having my first um, publishing contracts. And so I, I was living outside of Boise, Idaho, with a second-story office in my home that overlooked the beautiful mountains in Idaho. And I had this naive little dream of just writing and teaching and speaking and not having to be a leader anymore, you know, just to, just to kind of have life on my own terms, so to speak. And I'd made a lot of Anglican friends when I was in the kind of the Wimber movement. Um, uh, I mean, I don't know how much you guys know about this. I'm trying not to be boring. Um, but there would be no John Wimber. There would be no vineyard movement without the Anglican Church. The Anglican Church put Wimber on the map. And that's too long of a story to tell. But the vineyard movement basically followed the Church of England. From England to Australia to New Zealand to Hong Kong. It just kind of followed the old British Empire and, and the Church of England. So because I was close to Wimber, I had a lot of, um, of Anglican friends. And then as president of Alpha, if you know anything about the Alpha course, you know that it comes out of Holy Trinity Brompton, which is uh, arguably the most influential Anglican church in the world when you count the Alpha course. And so I had tons of friends from my days at Alpha. Well, one of those friends heard that I was sort of like doing nothing <laughs> and called and said, hey, I want to start a church. And he was a, the rector of a church in Oceanside, California, which is near San Diego. Said, hey, we want to start a church in Carlsbad, which is kind of just a little bit inland from Oceanside. He said, well, you know, why don't you come do this? And I said, no. <laughs> so the last thing I want to do, I don't want to be in charge of something. I just want to think smart thoughts and write them down and, you know, teach and speak. I don't want to be in charge of something. Well, one thing led to another, and he introduced me to the Anglican Mission in the Americas, and they said to me, hey, do you think you could help us figure out how to plant kind of evangelical, spirit-filled, kingdom-minded Anglican churches on the West Coast? And I thought I was getting a consulting job. (laughs) Now, that fit. Like, I was okay to tell somebody else how to do something, Um, but one thing led to another, and, you know, it was, well, no, we really want you to do this, and if you're going to do this, you really need to be a bishop. And I remember one time uh, saying to the leader of the Anglican Mission, I said, why would I want to be a bishop? I've already been an archbishop. <laughs> right. Meaning I'd already been the president of a denomination. Like, I, I, didn't, I didn't mean that, like, rudely. I just meant I don't need to be a bishop. I can just start a church and start a bunch of other churches. And he said, no, 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 in our system, if you're going to have that kind of authority, you know, we call that a bishop, so you really need to be a bishop. And so I ended up here today. <sighs> Here's a 41-year story for you right there. So you're a bishop, you're, and you're a very particular kind of bishop, I think yeah. it's fair to say. So um, how do you describe me behind my back? Oh, no, we call it... We, no, 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 seriously, how would you... De- I'm being funny. How would you describe what I do? I, well, when what? we talk, I'm always like, we are part of a church-planting diocese. Mm-hmm. We have a church-planting bishop, and basically kind of our thing, the gift that we bring to the table in our ACNA yeah, is right. mission and church planting. That's right. And we, we, we spend a lot of time, because we have Bishop Clark, we have three dioceses represented in our church, if not maybe more. Um, so we have Bishop Clark, we have yeah. Pittsburgh, Bishop uh, Duncan, yeah. um, and then we have you. And so yeah. part of us having to make sense of that is we've celebrated, look at the, look at the partnership that we have. It's not for uh, the sake of having partnership or even having a church, but for the sake of others, it's for the sake of yeah. mission. 
So that's we've talked about it quite a bit like that. Would you add anything to that? Or yeah, uh, that reminds me, Sean. That something I wanted to say when you asked about it. What's a bishop? Historically, bishops have had a see, which just means usually a, a territory. Like it would not be uncommon to have a, the bishop of Austin. There probably was one at one time, right? The Episcopal bishop of Austin, mm-hmm. or you know, it might have been a bigger territory. But that's normally how how bishops were construed. It, if, if bishops are overseers, what was the extent of that to which they oversaw? Are you following me here? And so that would be get described geographically. Okay, so far so good. Nothing wrong with that, right? Except for, over time, bishops became very territorial. So, right, so there's a positive sense of territory, right? Like, even if you're a salesman in a corporation, you kind of want to know what's my territory, right? Like, what am I responsible for? So there's a positive sense of that term. So when I say territorial, I don't mean necessarily negative. But over time, it did become kind of increasingly negative. And so what Archbishop Duncan and myself and Bishop Clark and others are trying to do is model a different and more modern way of being bishops that's more cooperative, more relational, it's not that the lines aren't there on a map somewhere. I mean, I'm not confused that I don't live in Houston, and Clark's not confused that he doesn't live in the L.A. area. You know, we, we get that. Um, but we don't think those lines on a map should um, prevent us from cooperating together as, you know, work, work persons in the gospel. So that's what we're trying to model, people like Clark and Bob and I. So we help each other. We work, we work with each other. Um, so another, shifting gears a little bit, we talk about life together in the goodness of God a lot in our church. And there's some ways that we're trying to wrestle with working that out. We have people meeting in homes, table groups. We have our Sunday gatherings. We have catechism going on. We have kind of all of the, in, the, the cylinders firing in our church. Um, we're, we're, we're at a lot of things. We're going about a lot of things that seem to be really good. I wanted to ask the bishop just, and I've given a little bit of an overview of kind of what we're up to with spiritual formation and with community and home groups and our worship life together and thinking about who is who is not in our church looking kind of outward facing and wondering about our neighbors and how we reach our neighbors and asking bishop todd to speak a little bit to kind of explore a little bit that phrase life together in the goodness of god which i ripped off from bishop todd i don't know if you remember this but just so it's like recorded we were in a car in wisconsin at neshota and i said bishop i saw you said this can i use this and you're like yeah of course so (laughs) I did have permission. I didn't even remember saying it. But uh, I made that up. No, I didn't make it up. So uh, I wanted to ask the bishop just to kick that around with us. What does it look like? And maybe you can speak a little bit from Costa Mesa land and the ways you guys are working on that. But what does it look like for us to be not a holy huddle church that has our smells and bells and we love each other, Mm -hmm. but a a church that where life together in the goodness of God actually includes our neighbors and those who aren't in church as well? Uh, so a couple things come to mind. Um, so let's start with the biggest picture. On the biggest picture, we probably all need to be careful that life together in the goodness of God does not become like merely a set of practices or a small group system or um, Thursday night outreaches, whatever. I mean, those things are all fine. But that's kind of like saying a seven iron. Hmm. Or middle C. Or a mop. Are you tracking with me here? I mean, a seven iron 
only has meaning in the context of something bigger than itself, right? Middle C only has context, uh, only has meaning in a wider context of, you know, uh, a piece of music. A mop only has meaning in the context of cleaning something up. So we, I think we have to all be just aware and nurture in us that those things are means. And no one is going to pick up a seven iron who hasn't intended to play golf. Like, I, I know there's somebody in this room who just hates golf, just thinks it's the stupidest thing in the world. Why would somebody chase a white ball all over the place, right? And so because you have no intention of ever playing golf, a seven iron is meaningless to you. And these groups, these programs, these approaches that we create that we so love dearly in our heart not only can be but are meaningless to people who have not intended to live life as an apprentice of Jesus for the sake of their community. Are you tracking with me? These things only have meaning to those who have said, I want to play golf. And typically what makes somebody engage their will in that deep way to actually reorganize their life, you know, start looking online at golf shops and how to get things cheapest and where to play. You know, somebody who would take all that time and will have engaged their will on that level is because they have a vision for a different kind of life. So, you know, I I often say this to groups of young people uh, and in my classes at university, I'll say, you know, what if you got a boyfriend you know, suddenly your dream come true, ladies, you got a boyfriend and he was all into golf. Your vision of spending time with him might be enough to surprisingly make you suddenly like golf. And, and so something changes inside of you to where now you intend to at least know enough about golf to hang out with your boyfriend. And then you start looking for means. Then you start looking for clubs and gloves and shoes and balls and right so i think it sounds to me like you're already doing it frankly you're already have in place the basic things you need to do to kind of begin to work out life together in the goodness of god but i think you have a constant need all of you not just sean and the other leaders but all of you in fact i'll just tell you like talking behind sean's back for a minute so it doesn't have to be him saying this. I'll say it as a lifelong church planner. Do you want to know one of the tenderest, dearest, um, most celebratory moments a church planner ever has is when he hears one of you articulating your vision. When, 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 when a leader who's starting something new can hear other people in their own words and from their own heart articulating the vision of resurrection, that is such a huge win for a church planner. Am I right? Totally. I mean, it's hard to explain how, how that makes church planners feel. It's just, it's so great. So you guys have to become the ones who can articulate this vision and why we've all intended to do what we're doing. Do you hear what I'm saying? So we have this vision of life together in the goodness of God for the sake of others. That's our vision. That's, our, that's the orienting story of our life. Um, we've intended to give our life to it and and this is how we're doing it right now i guarantee it'll change and guarantee a year from now you'll be you'll be slightly different 
you'll be slightly different in how you're running that out. So look at me. Just like somebody who's learning to play golf realizes I have to adjust my grip. Right? So you're still playing golf, still doing your thing, but you're learning and adjusting as you watch which way the ball flies. Right? And she'll all be doing that together. Oh, well, we've been doing this pattern and the ball's been flying this way or that way and we want it to fly a little differently. So you change things at the level of means, but you're not changing your intention to be followers of Jesus for the sake of others and you're certainly not changing your vision for being, uh, being a people who experience the goodness of God for the sake of others. So I think what you have to... I don't mean have to. like I don't mean to put this on you like some big burden... But the, I'm just telling you, the way this works is you guys become the carriers for that virus. You can actually explain the vision in, you know, in your own words, not like Sean does, in your own words, uh, and to your own context. You can explain the vision. You can talk about how when your heart heard the vision, something in you leaped and you decided to give your life to it. And then you can talk about, here's how we're doing it. What would you say, um, so you've been in church planning world for... Ever, yeah. forever. Um, how, what would you say at this stage in the game for us, for um, some folks out in the middle of Central Texas? What's like some really solid words of encouragement that you could give to us? Um, kind of seeing the challenges that we have of like, you know, the challenges of being a small church plant, trying to make sense of what it means to be this new community in this neighborhood, trying to discern what it is that the Holy Spirit's leading us to do. How would you encourage us on some things that we just really need to know and make sure we have? really solidly um well on the level of public worship and on the level of what we do you know what i mean if i use the phrase prayer book spirituality do you know what i mean like sort of the daily offices and that sort of thing um i think on the level of public worship and prayer book spirituality and again, I kind of wish Sean wasn't here because I could just say it more forcefully. But uh, I actually think Sean has, Sean, and evidently you got, you all have really good instincts about all this. And so I think you're, you're probably doing fine. Maybe I could just explain to you maybe what's going on. Again, like a golf coach who could, so you hit a great shot and you go, oh my God, what happened? <laughs> you know, part of, so part of what a golf coach does is not just correct the bad shots, but be able to explain, here's what you did right. So, um, America and um, Texas would not be the leaders of this, but Texas has it for sure. Um, and they have it a lot. Um, I'm sorry I have to like nuance everything. I, I love everybody, including the Southern Baptists. Okay? <laughs> um, but it's, it's just it's a new thing in American Christianity for Southern Baptists to be losing members. That's what used to happen to the Methodists, the liberal Episcopalians, the liberal Lutherans, you know, the Presbyterians. It's brand new in 230 or 40 years of history on this continent that the Southern Baptists are now actually losing people rapidly. Um, it's estimated now that about 1,000 evangelicals leave the church a day. Every day. So those people, they're sometimes called the de-churched, the duns. I mean, I'm just done with church. Um, once they've been out a long time, they're called the nuns. Because when they check boxes, like for work or whatever, what religion are you, they check none. 
So, so sociologists have all these slang words for the de-church, the duns, the nuns. Um, and this is where I think I would, like if I had to bet, I would bet that that is one of the main ways that God will use you guys. And so this latest study that I recently saw, and one of my jobs is I'm a professor, so that's why, forgive me, but um, professor of evangelism and contemporary culture, so I read a lot of this stuff. And one of the recent studies shows that um, if you want to help these people make their way back to church and make their way back to a, a vibrant relationship with Jesus, whatever you do, don't try to be cool. Seriously. The cool to, like, my oldest son is 30, my daughter's 23. So, like, that era, see, I invented cool church, meaning my generation. Seriously. My baby boomers invented cool church. And so what's normative to kids? They typically don't want their parents' world, right? They want their own world. And so cool church is... I, I'm not going to say it doesn't work because I'm sure you could point to churches in Austin who are totally cool and totally hip and have loud music and the pastor wears skinny jeans and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? I'm sure it could point to churches like that all over the place in Austin. But in general, the movement is towards something like this. Um, I want to see what genuine Christianity is like. I don't want to be fed a facade that only later you figure out what really is Christian. That's what's changed. Mm. You see, when you had essentially a Christian culture, um, again, I, I almost idolize Billy Graham too much. I know all the weaknesses and stuff, but I mean, he's just such an amazing human being. But it's the Christian culture that allowed Graham to happen, right? What was Graham's most frequent phrase? The Bible said. That was his most frequent phrase. I used to, I used to be a, sort of a Graham scholar. i got to stand up for a minute. Um, and it's by far his most frequent phrase. The Bible says. The Bible says. Well, he was speaking, let's say he's at, you know, Houston uh, Astro Stadium. He was speaking to 100,000 people who grew up knowing the story of Zacchaeus. They knew the story of that big fish who swallowed somebody, right? They knew all this. And so Graham could appeal to them. In fact, at the end of Graham's career, he was either being interviewed by um, Larry King or the British guy, David Frost. I can't remember which one. And he said, you know, as I, as I reminisce and I think back, I mostly went around the world saying to people, come on home to what you know to be true. Hmm. Right? So like when he would say things, like when he was getting to the point of an invitation... Here's what a Graham invitation sounded like. You may have been baptized. You might have been confirmed. But tonight, you know you don't have a what? Anybody remember what he'd say? You don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, come on. You don't have to be a genius to think about what he was saying. What do you have to do in any church? Anglican, Catholic, Orthodox, Presbyterian, Lutheran. What do you have to do to get baptized or confirmed? catechized Mm -hmm. so he knew he was talking to stadiums full of people who had a basic understanding of the christian faith well just go down to one of the hip spots in austin and try to say to somebody come home to what you know to be true that day's gone it's over 
I mean, it's never, it's probably never, it was never coming back in our lifetime. I don't care how young the youngest of you here, it's not coming back in your lifetime. So we have a completely different culture. So now, follow me here. That same culture that gave rise to Billy Graham. So, so I'll say something else that's important here. There's no such thing as a decontextualized form of evangelism. Every form of evangelism always arises out of and is in conversation with some precise context. So whether it's Jesus talking to Nicodemus or Paul on Mars Hill, it's the context and the person itself that drives the evangelistic conversation and the evangelistic activity. So when you had a Christendom, modern America, that gave rise to things like Billy Graham and the church growth movement and to the seeker movement like Bill Hybels or the seeker sensitive movement like Rick Warren. And I love those two guys. I know them. Rick spoke at my consecration as a bishop. I I love Rick. But they came out of a certain context and were in conversation with a certain context that what's so shocking to everybody is that that context has changed and died so fast in about a generation. But see, everything changes fast now because of this, right? The connectivity allows, it drives a pace and scope of change that's unprecedented in human history, right? You got all that? This is why I'm saying for you guys to just be real live church, like church isn't about us. Like, if I were to say to you, why do you start with an opening acclamation? If you were to say to me, because it's in the prayer book, I'd go, yeah, okay. <laughs> but I would hope you would be giving me a, a better answer. An answer that said something like this. From the very first words out of our mouth, we're alerting everybody that this, this meeting is about God, not about us. Blessed be God. You've been saying for 26 weeks now. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And blessed be His kingdom now and forever. We don't say that because it's in the prayer book. We say it because it's an orienting, alerting, noticing thing that says you've come here into a different space. You've come into a sacred space where we're giving ourselves to God. Now, we're doing that for the sake of others. We're doing it for the sake of, quote, secular spaces. But in this space and in this time, and what I'm saying is, see, there's no attempt there to be cool. See what I'm saying? Now, I would hope that you have an attempt at being hospitable. So that we're never shoving the prayer book down people's throats or saying, well, we don't care what you think or what you feel. No, you should care deeply what people think and feel as they interact with you. But, but that's, the, that's the tension. That's the game. That's the, that's the task of evangelism and discipleship is to you know, figure out how to talk to people on their terms, both personally and um, in our public worship. And so what, I'm, what I want to say, bottom line or headline is I just have this feeling that you guys have the instinct to do that right. I don't know why, I just do. Hmm. I I think you guys are and can figure that out. And it's going to be really useful if you can keep warm-hearted hospitality, joyful orthodox theology, rooted in meaningful public worship. If, If anybody's going to become a Christian today, they want to genuinely become a Christian. Right? Can you fathom a Buddhist seeker service? Come on, think about it. What would a Buddhist... I mean, that's an oxymoron. There, there could be no such thing as a Buddhist seeker service. Why? Because Buddhism is not a coherent theology. You do, you do know that, don't you? There is no Buddhist theology. Buddhism is a coherent set of practices. 
So there could be no such thing as a, um, a Buddhist seeker service because if you're going to go try on Buddhism, you're going to, from the get-go, be doing what they do, right? So, but the this, this sort of the seeker movement, again, I'm not putting it down, but that seeker movement made sense in a Christendom culture in which everybody was vaguely Christian. I'm overstating it. Do you know what I mean? Well, in a culture now where you've got sort of the haves and have-nots of religion, anybody or, or increasingly people who want to sniff out Christianity, they want to sniff out the real thing. Not a watered-down, you know, most of it's held behind your back. Um, but, no, this is who we are. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sending each other out. You know, just think of the rhythm of the, of the liturgy. Gathering, word, right? Um, prayers, confession, Eucharist, sending. That rhythm of the liturgy is the real thing, right? It gathers the people, it, it feeds and nourishes a people, and then sends them into the world for the sake of others. So um, th- this liturgy that you guys are doing is not by a- it's, it wasn't designed by accident. It was designed by ac- but, you know, on purpose to be like a miniature version of the gospel story. So as we grow up as a church and um, we kind of begin making sense of our neighborhood and what it means to be a part of this diocese, what would be uh, some challenges that you would issue to us if we're saying to you, Bishop, we want to participate in the mission that you're about. How do we as a church plant um, keep in mind or keep in view some of the things that you would say, here's my challenge, I want to issue these challenges to you guys. Keep this in mind. Can I ask you a question? That yeah, please. Bounces off of what you said before you burst this topic. So, yeah. um, you know, the, uh, What's your name? Nathan. Hi, Nathan. Uh, same or similar liturgy has formed the Anglican communion throughout much of the world. And yet, that liturgy has shaped the church in America very differently than it has, say, the church in Africa or Asia or even Europe. So what... So Are you all hearing this question? So you can't... So like, just like, No, stand up so people can hear you. Okay. Yeah, he's used to this. He's our music director. This is Nathan. Hi, okay. Nathan. So Somebody. my the question is, like... Um, not the same liturgy, but a very similar liturgy has formed and discipled and shaped the Anglican, Anglican communion throughout the world. And yet how that has, the effects that, that has had on the church is very different, say, in North America than it is, say, in Africa or in Asia or even in Europe. So what accounts for those differences? If we're worshiping and being formed by the same liturgy, what, what in your opinion, that's a great question, Nathan. I remember after I'd become an Anglican, um, I can't remember, I was driving, you know how you're driving in your car, you're laying down your head on the pillow and these thoughts pop in your brain, right? Am I the, right? Everybody has that experience, right? So I don't remember, I was driving in my car, laying down at night or something, and I remember Nathan, this panic thought coming in my head. You know, I was a brand new Anglican, but I had this panic thought. Oh my God, if the liturgy's so great, how do you explain the Episcopal Church? <laughs> and I panicked. I like literally panicked. Like, what the heck? Like, how could a people pray these prayers and read these lectionaries? And, and, and how powerful could the Eucharist be if it sponsored some of the most weird apostateness North America's ever seen? And then I started thinking of all the problems in the Roman Church and all the social problems in the Orthodox Church. And I started panicking. Like, what the heck? So here's, here's my answer. It's very simple in a sense I've already said it. This part I haven't said. The liturgy is not magic. 
It requires human intentionality. What do you intend as you say the confession? If you do not intend to actually confess yourself, your sins to Almighty God, then all you've done is read some black ink on a white page. But if you intend to get real with God, then the liturgy will have power. So I think what explains it is actually what do you want? And so, for instance, when the Episcopal Church in the U.S., and some of you would be more familiar with this than me, um, but when the Episcopal Church in the U.S. started saying, well, what we really intend is to accommodate to this changing culture, well, then the prayer book became to them like a hammer. But when somebody else says, no, I want to apprentice myself to Jesus, then the prayer book can become like a screwdriver. So the prayer book is not magic. It needs human leadership. In, from people like Sean, it needs genuine participation from people like us who would you know, be giving ourselves to this rhythm of life and liturgy, life and worship. And it needs the animating, energizing presence of the Spirit. But usually what brings that sense of the presence of God in a worshiping room is the intentionality of the people doing it. So, for instance, when I show up as a bishop you know, in the purple shirt... And I'm speaking to a group of, you know, a couple hundred clergy or something. I'll often say to the guys in black shirts like Sean and you guys. um, I I do this on purpose to be provocative. I'll say, I just want you to know as your bishop, I forbid you from ever again standing up and reading the absolution. (laughs) what What the heck? Is this some kind of crazy bishop? And I say, I'll say, yes, I mean it. How dare you ever stand up again? And read the absolution. No, you stand up as a priest in the name of God and in alignment with his story to redeem humanity through Jesus and announce to your people that their sins are forgiven through Jesus. And I just want you to know a congregation knows the difference between and somebody who's in touch with God, in touch with the love of God, in touch with the sacrifice of Jesus, lovingly connected to their congregation, those kind of priests do not stand up and read the absolution. They're doing ministry. They are standing up as Jesus promised in the Gospels, as people who've been given keys to the kingdom, to, in Jesus' name, to absolve people of their sins. Now, we're not the absolvers. I get it. That's God and Christ. But we stand with them as, pick your analogy, Ambassadors of the kingdom, um, apprentices of Jesus, co-laborers, to use Paul's language. I mean, there's all kinds of metaphors in the Bible. But when a priest stands up with a congregation who has just genuinely done business with God, when that priest then stands up and says, now this is God's heart towards you, that's something different than reading the absolution. So if, do you see what I'm saying? So the, the liturgy is not magic. You can't just read the liturgy and expect that it's going to be transformative. Both, both the leaders and the congregation have to bring to it an intentionality that says, we are interacting with this to apprentice ourselves to Jesus for the sake of others. That, I think, is the basic answer. Really good. John. So, Bishop Todd, to sort of complete the loop on this conversation... It seems like almost from what you're saying, there's like two sides of it. On the one side, there is human of liturgy, or of, of the way that liturgy functions yep. or actually forms of people. 
So that so it doesn't work unless there is intentionality. And yet there is something really beneficial about it because it's a form that allows us when we inhabit it with proper intentionality uh, to actually rehearse the story Absolutely. in an embodied way that makes us, that composes us as those yeah. people who are willing to go out and do mission. So it has, it, like it's, it's, it's not um, as though like all forms would then be on a level playing field, right? No. So could you say a little bit more about that? No. Like why, like commend the prayer book to us. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just ask something about the ACNA is working on a prayer book rather than uh, 1979, which is kind of through the last 60 years of the Episcopal Church becoming more apostate. Mm-hmm. I just, um, yes, there are very, uh, another layer to this conversation is there are various prayer books out there um, that can be used. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> no, I hear your point. So I think there's two things to be said. One is, Every church has a liturgy. And every church fights over their liturgy. Like when I was president of Vineyard Churches, and when Vineyard was the bee's knees, you know, we were like the most famous church in America at the time. Sorry. We were the hipsters of our day. And we were the popular kids on the block. Um, and so we had a liturgy. And it basically went like this. We sang for 35 or 40 minutes. We taught the Bible for 35 or 40 minutes, and then we'd have what was called a ministry time. Well, a, a church that I started in Cincinnati, Ohio, I handed it over to a guy called Steve Shogren, who wrote a book called um, Servant Evangelism. And that church started exploding, and they were meeting in a little, a, a little room like this that could only hold a couple hundred people. And they were growing to like 1,000, 2,000, just growing really fast. And so they were having to turn over services like every 70 minutes. And so they couldn't sing for 35 minutes anymore. They, were, they realized they could only sing for 22 minutes. And I was in the room where other senior national vineyard leaders looked at Steve and said, you're no longer vineyard. Because you're only singing 22 minutes, not 35 or 40. That's not vineyard. So every church has a liturgy. The only question is, to your point, is it good or bad? Is it more or less useful? Is it more or less shaping? Because every church... Even Joel Osteen has a liturgy, right? Every church has a way of doing things. Um, so, yes, you're right. That the, the, there's a logic to the liturgy that I would want to say can be and is intended to be deeply formational. Now, what I was saying about intentionality, I really believe, and I was trying to answer Nathan's question, but there is a sense in which we're all just human. And we all can't come here 52 weeks a year and give our whole... Now, listen to me. We can't give our whole heart to every aspect of the liturgy 52 weeks a year, right? We're, we just can't. We're fallible human pe- people. We sometimes come to church sort of sick, um, or, or one of the kids are sick, or our parents are in a nursing home, or our boss chewed us out, or our mind's just wandering. So I don't mean to, again, put on you this big burden where you have to be 100% present 100% of the time. And if you would ask me why, I would say because of the point you're making. So actually, in our order of service, we have a paragraph that says, if you get lost in the liturgy, don't worry. Just make yourself peacefully present and let the congregation pray for you, sing for you, listen for you. Because there is drip, 
drip, drip over a period of time and effect that the shape of this liturgy can have on a person. That's a, I think that's absolutely true. Okay. Am I getting at what you're I think so, yeah. trying to get at? Yeah. Um, I want to kind of, uh, this question is related to, you're talking about context and Billy Graham. Yeah. And the, thing, the things that Billy Graham would context. say in uh, the context of speaking to people who um, were, they were familiar with church and liturgy. Do you have examples of teachers, leaders, ministers um, that were speaking to people who were completely unchurched? Right? Like, that's a little bit what we're moving toward, or de church. I mean, we're, we're almost even moving, kind of moving toward hostile against church, mm-hmm. right? Which might even be worse than um, just a missionary going to a completely unchurched place. Yeah. Do we have ex- examples we can draw from and say, well, look at their method was mm-hmm. uh, different? Of course, not just the method, the content is the most important. Yeah. Uh, we do, and I think that it's biblical and apostolic. So I mean, you're, so from the New Testament to the first couple hundred years of the church, um, you know, before uh, Constantine, is probably the places we need to look. But we're also not the first ones to have gone through this in 2,000 years, so there are other places in Christian history that we can look and, and at least borrow worldviews, if not practices, um, because practices are so contextually driven that you can't just always look at something, well, this worked in 700 in Turkey and just extrapolate to 2016 Austin. You might be able to, but you can't assume that because, quote, best practices, you know, to use that corporate term, um, they're derived out of a context, and it's especially true in religion. I mean, it's true in the corporate world, too. The best practices aren't necessarily just transferable. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't church world you definitely can't assume that but so now I, I'm not thinking of any names right off the top of my head um, but I, I am thinking of um, practices so for instance um, if you think of the um, just think of the physicality of Graham you know standing on high stages now look how much the, the feel of this room changed just by me doing this right so the physicality, not my heart, not Billy Graham's heart, but the physicality is condescending. Now, how did I end up here? Because the modern world loved and demanded experts, and the Christendom world loved and demanded its heroes. So we expected the Grahams of the world to be on stage. We expected them to be on TV. We expected them to be on the radio. And so the, the, the physical thing is condescending. So the Bible says, in a moment I'm going to ask you, we live in a world where the practice has to be something more like this, more alpha-esque. Now watch how much the room changes when I say, so what do you think or feel about what you just heard? Right? Everything changes. So as a professor of evangelism, I would say that there are some practices that, um, that evangelism today has to begin with listening. And you'd say, well, that sounds like compromise. No, conversation is not compromise. Conversation and, and listening is an act of love and hospitality and space-making. 
Part of the reason there's such blowback against the church, and I don't, again, I do not, I don't, I'm not an unkind person. So I don't mean, this is just like a scholarly observation. And it's a little oversimplified. But basically, there's a big blowback against the religious right of the 90s. It's basically saying, shut up. I mean, if you, to, if you go to the Rocky Mountains, anywhere from like the Springs up to Fort Collins, there's a very famous bumper sticker that says, um, it's just went out of my head. Um, like, shut up and mind your own family, I think is what it says. What's it say? Yeah, focus on your own damn family. Thank you. Okay, so where does... Now think about it. What's the social psychology of that? Where does that come from? Now again, I'm sure the Palins are a lovely family. I mean that. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm sure they're a lovely family. I'm sure Bristol's a totally normal, lovely kid. But remember her being pregnant out of wedlock while her mom was standing on stages all over America moralizing? Hmm. The world just says, shut up. Who the hell do you think you are? Focus on your own damn family. Seriously, that, that's what's going on. And so when you try to sort of preach into that without creating space for why they feel that way and helping them unpack why they feel that way, you're just not going to get anywhere. But for instance, this, this would be very provocative at a coffee shop or club or something anywhere here in Austin to say to somebody, if it were up to you, would you like there to be a God? And then you just listen. And it doesn't matter what they say, you will find an open door. Because what's going to happen as soon as they answer that question? This is just a for instance. You're going to start hearing all their deeply felt biases. No, I would not want there to be a God. Why? Because he's capricious. He, um, what do I mean to say? He's, uh, he's untrustworthy. He's flippant. When I was a little boy, a little girl, I prayed for my grandmother to be saved. And, you know, she was hit by a drunk driver and was in a coma for three weeks. And we all prayed our guts out. And Grandma died. F your God. That's the kind of stuff you're going to hear. And Wait, so now you know what you're dealing with. Oh, I, okay, I see what's going on here. So, see, the more you listen, the, the more you hear what's driving somebody's worldview and what's driving their sense of religion and God and Christianity and all that. Or somebody might say to you, you know, no one's never asked me that. But actually, if I have to answer it, I think I would wish there was a God. And then you simply say, why? Why does that sound good to you? And then, see, again, they'll start unpacking their realness. So evangelism today has to be kind of a connection of realness to realness, not the surfacy. And again, I'm not being critical, but not the surfaciness that Christendom and modernity allowed. But in a post-Christian, increasingly hostile um, and postmodern world, it's just by it's by nature more egalitarian. It's more like this than it is like this. So what yeah. were you going to say? But, thank you. I, I, mean, I, I agree with, with everything you're saying. Um, and I just well, then my work here is done. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, you know, in a similar vein. So one of the ways I would describe it is um, we we need to be genuine, mm-hmm. right? And you can sense whether or not we're genuine. Right. And also, it's almost more challenging for us because we need to be philosophers 
and scientists and like we I mean Christians need to be, need to be. yes we need to be very knowledgeable yeah. in a way that we didn't need to before mm-hmm. uh, in a sense when there was already kind of like this you know we're okay familiarity, familiarity. yeah thank you so um, yeah that's what you were saying I don't know how we're doing on time. Here, well, I just want to ask this one more question. Coming back, that's that's a really good discussion. What would be the, what would be a challenge that you would issue to us as one oh, of your congregations yeah. looking forward? Thank you for bringing us back. Yeah. Sorry. I no, that's fine. Got all professory on you. I'm no, so that's sorry. good stuff. No. Um, that's really, really good stuff. Um, I would say keep working at helping us. I always use the phrase "crack this code." Keep helping us figure out. I just have a feeling you guys are going to lead in helping us figure out how to be authentically Anglican in public in a way that's deeply spiritual and that's good for our community. So just keep helping us do that. Um, and then I would I would challenge you. You know, one of the things that we have in C4SO is this kind of little buzz phrase that says two and five. And it just means that it's our goal to plant two new churches every five years. Um, it's not a requirement. I'm never going to call Sean and go, <clears throat> Sean, you're three years into this, and you know, it's not like that. This actually it's is just, the second from Redeemer yeah. in Santa Cruz because we planted yeah. Gary in Asheville and nice in work. Austin. So we got to, it starts over though, right? Yeah, and for you guys, <laughs> it starts all over. The clock's ticking. I'm good, but you guys. Yeah, the, the clock is ticking. Um, but what that really means is. Um, it would be so great if you guys could cultivate a, a, a learning community out of which new leaders could arise, where you could identify, you know, God's gifting and callings on each other, work with each other, and deploy each other. And you're not all going to be called and deployed into church planning, but deployed into mission somehow. And some of you, I could almost guarantee over five years, there's going to be church planners, two church planners that are just going to naturally arise out of this place. But it's not automatic. They do need to be identified. and You know, they need to get ordained and trained in church planning and whatever. But that's... Um, do you think there's something to the fact that, um, like, we, we live in a place that is the fastest growing area of the country. Um, our church is seeing kind of unparalleled partnership between dioceses and bishops. Yeah. Friendships between bishops, I'm not sure when's the last time it's been that good, you know? Yeah. Um, so fast growing, lots of friends, uh, bishops who are friends together. And then, um, as you've kind of identified, a, uh, a swell in our own community of emerging leaders that we've mm-hmm. identified. Would you say, like, yeah, that's kind of a perfect storm for some really exciting mission looking into the future. Yeah, and how common is the vision of the I-35 corridor? Um, a lot of these folks know, but it's it's just kind of grassroots. Yeah. So they may have heard little snippets here and there. But Yeah, that's a totally cool vision that will require the cooperation of lots of churches and bishops and stuff. But again, what people like Clark and I and others are trying to model is we're not trying to build our diocese. Um, trust me, if I were being selfish... My life would be perfect if I could just be the bishop of Orange County, California, <laughs> and didn't have to ever get on an airplane again and could just drive an hour, an hour and a half, you know, each way, you know. Um, that would be my ideal life if I was being selfish. So we're not trying to build our own little kingdom, um, our own little diocese. We're trying to facilitate the work of the kingdom that's already happening on the earth, and that's why um, Sean is experiencing what he's experiencing is it's... Um, 
not some new tactic. It's um, more of a heart-level relational thing. And for some of you who haven't heard, um, when, when Bishop Todd's talking about I-35, um, Scott Seeley, who's out in San Antonio, he's a priest out there, represents a different diocese. Um, who, where, who's he with? F- uh, Bishop Felix Orchi. That's oh, the yeah, diocese of the West. Cana West, yeah. yeah. Um, um, Perry Kuhn is, um, represents Bishop Clark out of Houston. And we're looking at the I-35 corridor, which is the fastest growing area in the country, and casting like a really... Uh, huge vision to plant 35 churches in that corridor on I-35. Uh, and so we've been praying and gathering with others and just asking God to make that happen. And um, when I called Bishop Todd on the phone and said, okay, here's, a, here's the one for you. We want to plant 35 churches. What do you think of that? Um, the, the response I got was, well, yeah, let's do it. I'm game for that. Um, so just so you hear, you hear it from me, that, and maybe from the bishop, you can speak to this a little bit. So what really happened is I said two and five, and Sean went, what a wuss. I'm talking about <laughs> Not at all. But could you talk about your response to a vision that's that audacious that in a place like this, in a time like this? Um, you need to have something like that just so that if um, – how old are you? 33. You need that sort of vision just so if in 40 years at 73, you can look back and go, ah, dang, we only started 29. We're such losers, you know. We only started, we didn't get to 35. But, but without that vision, you won't get anywhere near it. Because without that vision, you won't intend to do it. And without that intention, you won't find the means to pull it off. Where are we going to get the leaders? Where are we going to get the money? How are we going to get Bishop Todd to coordinate with all the other bishops? See what I'm saying? So it's that vision that pulls. It like creates a vacuum that like sucks everything toward it. So it, it's actually you have to have that kind of a vision. Mm. I remember the day when I was a young church planner, 23 years old, Wheeling, West Virginia, I was feeling like a total loser because I had only ever been in a megachurch, right? I was converted in Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Then I was with John Wimber when his church was exploding. So I thought that was normal church. Seriously, I was just a kid. I didn't know anything. You know, I was converted at 19. I was starting my first church by 23. I thought that was normal Christian life. And when I was starting my first church in Wheeling, it was more like this. And, and I, I remember I didn't have a car. I was bivocational. I used to hitchhike to work or ride the bus. So this was, I'd moved there in September. We'd gotten about like you guys are. This was January, like four months into it. I remember sitting on the curb just thinking, I am such a loser. Like maybe I came to the wrong place. You know, maybe I'm not really called. I just remember having those really dark thoughts that most church planners have at one point or another. And in that moment, I felt like this is one of the first times I ever really remember feeling like I heard the voice of God when I felt like the Lord said to me, well, Todd, what if my will for you is different than for Chuck Smith or Greg Laurie or John Wimber? And I'm like, why would you want to do that? You know? And I got the sense, and this is what I felt like the Spirit said to me in that moment. What if my will for you is multiplication, not addition? And in that moment, I instantly got a vision for planting... 20 churches in the biggest industrialized cities of North America in the next 10 years. And that's why I started that church in Cincinnati. So we were a little church like you guys, not much bigger. And one of my best friends at the time, his dad owned a recording studio, uh, owned a, sorry, a marketing company that had a recording studio. And so I got 
the, when, when, so when I first got that vision, I said, well, Lord, does that mean I like move around like the Apostle Paul or what do I do? But somehow I got the impression, no, stay in Wheeling. And the first of these industrialized cities was Cincinnati that we felt called to start in. So I'd go in the studio and I'd make these little five-minute radio programs. And then we put them on two secular stations in Cincinnati. And they would you know, play two or three times a day. And then once a month, we would go there and do interest meetings. And, you know, that church, I don't know, in its heyday, got up to like 8,000 or something. It's still like probably six or 7,000. That dopey little church that I planted in Wheeling is now 30-some years old, and it's still like about 1,000 people. So just think of the acts of goodness and kindness and hospitality and kingdom power that over 35 years that church in West Virginia has done. That people ask me, why are you passionate about church planning? That's why. I'm not passionate. I'm not a brand manager trying to plant Anglican churches. Communities of the kingdom and of the king are factories of goodness and love and kindness and power and healing and justice. That's why I'm excited about this. It's They do those kinds of things. But you see what I'm saying? Without that vision of 20 and 10, that was my equivalent of your I-35. 20 churches, 10 years. And we never got there because, frankly, I was asked to move back to Anaheim to pastor the big church. And so we probably only did a few of them. Three, four, five, I don't remember, so many years ago. But I, I, I never got to the vision. But what I'm saying is, see, that vision pulled me to whatever goodness did happen. So you may actually never do 35. What a bummer. You may only do 27. But that'll look good on your record in heaven. (laughs) 27 communities of the king trying to be apprentices to Jesus and his kingdom is a beautiful thing. Barry. Todd, could you speak to church planting in our culture with uh, the de-church, the unchurch, these nuns and duns and all that? Um, The the impact that that you you can see as a, a cultural expert? Um, versus the main line are church that's been on the corner forever and ever that people have seen. Uh, yeah, the simple thing to say is, and I don't know that I could explain this briefly, but the simple thing to say is um, it's easier to make babies than to raise the dead. Amen. <laughs> I'm feeling you here. Preach. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's easier and more fun to make babies that's than it right. is to raise the dead. Um, so what I mean by that tongue-in-cheek to get at what Perry's asking is, honestly, I don't know that I have all the reasons for this, at least not off the top of my head, but new things like this have always grown better, even in Christendom, but now, for whatever reason, new things have higher potential to be like magnets that attract things, where kind of the churches that have been on the corner forever, they kind of lose their magnetism. I don't know why exactly over time, but there's something about the kind of human and divine energy that gets released, the spiritual kingdom energy that gets released from new things like this. So I think it's a hugely important, I don't like this word, but tactic um, for the church today. Well, you guys, um, Bishop Todd's going to hang out a little bit, um, and you guys are welcome to have some snacks. But, Bishop, would you give us your blessing and pray for us? I would. Do you want to stand? Sure. Now, may the Lord bless you, each one. And may the Lord bless this community of faith. 
May he cause you to prosper richly in every good spiritual gift there is in Christ Jesus. And may the Lord keep you each one and as a community. May he guard you and watch over and protect you and all whom you love. And as you plant and grow this church, may the countenance of God be upon you, his face turned toward you, such that you'd see how very much Jesus loves you, how he accepts you right where you are, and invites you to follow him. And may the Lord be gracious unto you as you walk with him and grow with him. May you know his goodness, his favor, his mercy, his everlasting covenant love may it be upon you. And may the Lord grant you peace. May you be at rest. And may you be non-anxious in the love of God and create a non-anxious community for the sake of this city. In the peace of God, we ask it. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.